Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. This week I was speaking to Carlo Ravelli. Carlo Ravelli is a theoretical physicist. Have I even said that it's luminary? That it's luminary that makes Under the Skin? That without luminary, well, there, there would be Under... There was an Under the Skin pre-luminary, but I don't know if there would still be one. Luminary. Luminary. Thank you. So this is Under the Skin from Luminary. It's not just Under the Skin floating around untethered. It's very much on the platform of Under the Skin of uh, Luminary. I'm looking at you, Jen. You don't look well. <laughs> really? Yeah, you look a bit pale. Are you feeling all right in this moment? Is it the uh, cum? Yeah. Oh. What do you want to do? do, you, do you Keep going. To... <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Poor Jen. Carlo Rovelli is a physical, no, he's not a physical theorist. He's a theoretical physicist who has made significant contributions to the physics of space and time. He directs the Quantum Gravity Research Group at the Centre de Physique Theoretique. Oh, no, hold on a minute. Centre de Physique Theorique. Oh, my God. Imagine that was your job. Centre de Physique Theorique in Marseille, France. Carlo's book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, Reality is Not What It Seems, and The Order of Time are international bestsellers, which have been translated into 43 languages. I didn't know there were that many. Well, yeah, I'm not doubting it, Demai. Don't, don't assume that as soon as I turn to you, it's because of a typo, although 90% of the time, that is the reason that I turn to you. <laughs> His new book, There Are Places in the World Where Rules Are Less Important Than Kindness, is published next month, and I've had a look at it, and I've read it, and I've given it to my mother-in-law, so it's already served me well. Uh, features his reflections on everything from Newton's alchemy to Einstein's mistakes to the consciousness of an octopus. Oh, I should have read that one before I gave it to my mother-in-law. I'm interested in that. Hallucinogens and the meaning of atheism. I didn't read that either. Oh, I've skimmed this book. You're going to love this podcast. It was an amazing conversation. And I think he called it provocative. There was a bit where he said that I was uh, vague and I, I took umbrage at that. And you'll notice that the tone of the conversation changes significantly from that bit. And and uh, those of you that have watched old Russ's behaviours closely will watch me with the stealth of a lawyer building a case for the power of intuition and non-local consciousness using references right from science, yeah? So, um, Car Car he, these are, I love Carlo Rovelli. He's a teacher. I'm not trying to win a conversation against Char like these people under the skin. These are proper dudes, you know. All right. So these are some comments from the episode with Professor. What you laughing at, Hermit Crab over there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you give your little face a stretch. Look, Jen, are you going to be well enough to do the rest of our videos and work? That's my main concern. I can do these intros. And then what? I can do a video. Yeah, and then what? Do you want to do another video? Yep. And then what, Jen? Then I might... I don't know. I can't predict the future. <laughs> like, you might have to... Because I noticed you drifted off when I was doing something else. What did you do? Go and lay down? Yeah, my tummy. You lay on your tummy? Yeah. What a difficult thing. Demaya, how quickly can you learn to do Jen's <laughs> job, do you think? It's fine, we can get through it. Stop pausing the podcast intro. This is part of the intro. We're, we're metamodernists, we now know, from Seth Abrahamson. If I sit in this angle, it's okay. They are. Stay in that angle. It's good. I can see you there. Except for your eyes, which are disappearing into two dark, panda-like pools of sickly, deathly pallor. Great. <laughs> Especially nice with your new bangs. Thank you. Your new fringe. It's my heroin chic look. It's, it's certainly heroin chic, maybe not. 
<laughs> uh, Jen, I love you. I hope you feel well. But let's get this. Let's just let's stop mucking around and do this work. So, uh, yeah, get that book. There are you know places in the world where rules are less important than kindness by the brilliant Carlo Rovelli. So. Here are some comments from the Tom Oliver episode. Satchung Ten, never wear that T-shirt to the dentist again. Oh, never wearing a T-shirt to the dentist again. Well, Satchuk Ten, I think going there with no T-shirt at all, a bare chest, whatever gender you happen to be, will be bring its own challenges, I think. I've never seen anyone nude in a dentist or even in a bikini or even in just trunks. Swimwear in a dentist... I went to the dentist the other day and I said, I expect you've adapted to COVID quite well, have you? Because hygiene's always a priority down the dentist, isn't it? You can't go in there smoking a fag, dirt under your fingernails, like maybe like leaving a trail of toilet paper behind you as you leave the bathroom. You know when you have it out as a tail, do you? Okay. Island pear treats. Island's spare treats. Island Spa Retreats. <laughs> <laughs> Island Spa Retreats says, Wow, thanks, Russell. It's my favourite so far. Everything resonated. Yeah. Island Spa Retreats. God, I'd love an Island Spa Retreat. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? Judy Cornips. It made me want to go and buy his book. Well, that is the very... <laughs> that What a triumph. That's promo for you there, Judy Cornips. Kendall Clayart. I love how this conversation highlighted the science of our interconnectedness. We're all literally breathing each other's microscopic particles in constant interchange it is an act of radical self-care to protect people's ecosystems on the other side of the world in the end they are capital r us kendall clay art you have understood that podcast better than i did and i was there when it happened so i ought to know personal promo here's some promo of a person and that person is me I don't feel so good about having my feet up on a desk when I'm just in socks. You know, it undermines it. Why? Well, there's always a bit of gap between the foot and the sock. Why? There's the foot sock gap. <laughs> no, I don't have that. What do you mean? Well, you're wearing a snug, tight little sock. Look at that thing. It's a little green it's sock. Perfect. Gripping your foot, asphyxiating it. I know, you, I know you're wearing these initialed garments. I, I like that little bit of uh, embroidery and the calves there, Django. That's my trousers. Yeah, <laughs> that's my trousers. Jen, you're a wonderful simpleton. <laughs> no, no. That's my trousers by Jenny May Finn. Her I'm new smart. book. Are you though? Yeah. You didn't finish your degree. I didn't finish my PhD. I finished my two other degrees. But I, so we're basically the same when it comes to education. No, you didn't do anything above GCSEs. Well, they didn't go that well either, to tell you the absolute truth. All right, but remember when I was doing a master's and then degree? You dropped it. I took a break, Jen. I'm thinking, it's about God and religion. Not that made-up degree you've got in... What was it in again? Communications. Not even a real thing. Is it? Communications. <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> not real. Not like... No, for... no one challenges that communication isn't real. They all challenge God. That's right. And that's why you need a good old degree <laughs> in it. Instead of communication, which we all know about anyway, because we're doing it all the time, Jen. You might as well have a degree in brushing your teeth or having an eyebrow. Yeah. Oh, Jenny, I love you. This is actually, I can see this is lifting your spirits. I'm a yogi, see? No. I'm using a technique on Jen. Look how much What's more, this? Look how much more energised Jen is. That That's some, this is. What, this upward palm movement? I don't movement? like it. Why? What's wrong with it's it? It's weird. 
Because the elbow's going up and down it's like that. It's just annoyingly cupped. Yeah, it's got to be cupped. You've got to cup it, Jen. That's what's pushing the energy right up to the chakras. Uh, <laughs> I don't want your energy off my chakras. Your, your chakras. Are, let me read you a little email. We are literally breathing each other's microscopic particles in a constant interchange. That's not my words. That's Kendall Clayart's text. Was it, what was it? Was it a tweet? Was it an Instagram? It was an Instagram. It was an Instagram. Post, I believe is the correct way to say that. So, Jen, I'm all over them chakras of yours, my friend. Anyway, hey, oh my God, this is so exciting. You're going to love this. We're doing this new podcast thing called Ask Me Anything. We're doing an Ask Me Anything episode of Under the Skin. Are we calling it Ask Me Anything? Charge, doesn't that? Aren't we stealing the intellectual property of Brené Brown by calling it that? It's generic. It's like saying, uh, like saying... Like, uh, all back to mine or something. What? It's just an idiom. <laughs> That's not normal. I couldn't think of another Most idiom. Say that. You think of an idiom. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> it's like saying goodbye. <laughs> Why is goodbye the first thing thought to you? Because you ain't going nowhere. Not till the work's done, sick note. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so ask me anything's an acceptable idiom. Is that right, Charge? Charlie says it is. And that's the voice we can rely on here. Ask me anything. In these Ask Me Anything episodes of Under the Skin, you can ask me anything. You leave, go to russellbrand.com forward slash ask me anything. Although it also looks like ask me anything when it's written down like this all as one thing. I'm not saying it's a typo, Demaya. Don't get power. It'll just ask me anything. That's just the way the language works without the sort of spaces. It's confusing. Go to russellbrand.com forward slash ask me anything. And you can ask me anything. You can ask me any question you want. And, uh, you know, I'll obviously choose ones that show me in a good light and are actual questions and take a decent amount of time and show a variety of all manner of demographics. And those are the ones that I will answer on Ask Me Anything. Ask Me Anything. And... Uh, it's going to be good. We'll be putting it up on, on Luminary pretty soon, I would have thought. Hey, if you've not signed up to the mailing list, sign up to it now. Go to russellbrand.com. You get free content sent to you. I do unique little videos. I ask, answer your questions. I tell you about forthcoming gigs. Like my forthcoming gigs. Will they have happened already, Charlie, by the time this comes out? No. Well, there's a few tickets remaining for my shows in Oxford, Reading, and the London Palladium on around mid-November. Go on the website, have a look if you want to come. Okay, now I feel like I've given you enough there. Jenny is still very much conscious, though she looks like someone who may have a damp sweat on her forehead. Oh dear. Maybe. The new fringe there, <laughs> clinging on like the tentacles of a conscious octopus. And we now know that their tentacles are conscious and that their version of awareness would include their tentacles. You right, Jen? Mm. All right, let's listen to Carlo Ravelli. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Thank you so much, Carlo Ravelli, for joining me on Under the Skin. Thank you, Russell. Thank you very much. I've been excited to talk with you for a long while. I've read several of your books. I'm in receipt of uh, a copy of your recent book of essays, which I feel that you are promoting uh, currently, although I do not see you as a merciless machine for promotion, rather a bodhisattva of 
information. I'm, I'm just mentioning the book because I am literally reading it. It's, a, it's not a book of essays. It's a collection of things I've written in, a, in, a, in a newspapers, mostly in Italy, but also elsewhere. I was uh, I was uncertain whether to collect them in a in, in a book, but then I'm very happy because they're there, so people can read them. What I very much enjoy about your writing is that you're certainly content to commentate and postulate way beyond the remit of your uh, film, uh, your field of quantum th theory and theoretical physics, which is good because otherwise you would only be talking to theoretical physicists, which is, let's face it, it's a limited audience. And I, I wonder, when did you begin to use your base of academic knowledge to enter into distinct territories? Well, it's, it's two things. Uh, first of all, I've always been... Um, uh, interested by more than just uh, the physics I do. Uh, my passion for physics comes from a passion for knowledge in general and for politics and for uh, understanding life in general. So I, I, I've always seen science as one of the uh, of the informations we have about the world. Um, so my thinking has always been larger and more curiosity, I would say, has always been larger than just, uh, just science. Um, I started writing for the public much late, I guess in my 50s, something like that. And a little bit by chance, I, I had given a conference um, in which I, I, I made a connection with Dante, the Italian poet. And so a newspaper asked me, oh, this is a great conference. Why don't you write an article for us on that? Which I did. And then from that, I was asked to write more. And then it became a habit um, once in a while uh, to send things, written things to, uh, to journals, to newspapers. Uh, uh, somehow following my curiosities. I would read a book or discover something or find out something um, about this or about that. And, uh, and it grew. It grew on, on itself. But I, it was great because, um, look, I've written a book about Anaximander, a philosopher uh, 26th century ago, uh, because I got interested in it, his, uh, teaching history of science. Um, long ago. So I don't see science as a uh, one-way specialization on topics. I see it as a way to help us understand the world. And so I want to share this. Oh, Carla, can I ask what is that parchment scroll that you've got in your hand there, sir? It's the best thing you can imagine. White paper still unwritten. <laughs> a super state of pure potentialities, might I venture. Exactly. Imagine the things could be written here. I mean, it's fantastic. Oh, who knows where you could take us? It's just uh, just uh, um, taking notes of the things that I can learn from you, maybe, or you are asking me, <laughs> Russell. I'm flattered that you would even consider that a possibility, Carlo. Um Carlo, much of what intrigues me about your work are the 
uh, hmm, parallels that you draw and the conflict that you uh, identify between uh, scientific history and religious history. I suppose perhaps would it be fair to say this this famous opposition begins with Galileo and continues to the present day. What kind of synthesis do you feel is required if we are to surpass the current limits of materialism and their observable consequences, i.e. the rise of the individualistic masculine dominator culture, the, uh, the disassociation from nature? How through synthesis of uh, what you, the methods, techniques and disciplines of science and perhaps the romanticism and uh, beauty and embrace of mystery that we find in religion, can we form a different understanding of our lives as individuals and the way that we form systems to live together? An easy question. Yes, yes. In five, five minutes, please, using your parchment. <laughs> Um, well, let me give you an answer um, which uh, um, goes in a direction I'm not sure you would you would expect it. Uh, I think that in uh, religion, in traditional religion, um, at least some of the religions, many of the religions, or, or perhaps the religions I know better. Uh, there is exactly a lot of uh, that uh, uh, masculinity, power, dominance, uh, uh, lack of mystery, uh, which you're referring to. I mean, I grew up in a religion in which there is a single powerful man, male, who has total power on anything and requires adoration. Um, and uh, it's also religion that knows the answers. For me, scientific thinking has been, uh, uh, not since Galileo, but since much earlier, because science, I believe, uh, starts much earlier than Galileo. Galileo is a, is a step um, ahead in, in, in this way of thinking. Um, scientific think thinking is part of this way of thinking that thinks that we don't know the answers unlikely most of religion thinking, which tell you the answer. And so if we don't know the answer, we're immersed in mystery and we have to face mystery. We have to face our ignorance, um, which pushes us, I believe, to an attitude more open. First of all, more open to people who uh, think differently from us, because if we don't know the answer, maybe the others know the answers. Maybe we are wrong and the others are right. And so an attitude which is also politically more, um, less individualistic, so less centered on your own tribe, your own group. I think that what has been devastating in, in history, and it still is, is the fact that we divide ourselves in tribes. Every tribe's believing of having the right spirituality, the right religion, the right truth, being depository of truth. So I like a way of thinking that uh, doesn't do that and uh, accept our ignorance, accept the, the fact that mystery is out there and we try to learn because we do learn. There are plenty of things we learn. And uh, of course, it's not that the religious is only a, a super powerful God that tell us what to do and demand adoration and demand us to kill our enemies, which are the other gods. 
Uh, religion is much more than that. In, in, in religion, there are also expression of some of the best aspects of, uh, of, of humanity, uh, opening to one another and uh, um, understanding our limit and, uh, and uh, uh, loving one another and all that. Um, but we can have that without, uh, uh, without necessarily putting together with that the, uh, the, the fantasies which goes with most traditional religions. That's what I think. Thank you. Um, the, I, I recognize what you're saying, although I feel also that dogma must have entered into science. I don't mean at the sort of in the hmm, esoteric and monastic, more pure expressions of science uh, where it's a genuine academic pursuit. I mean, in terms of the way that it's funded, in terms of the questions that are asked, in terms of the science that is undertaken and the questions that are not asked, and in terms of, I suppose, the way that it is can become monolithic. Uh, I would say in the same way that you had described religion as becoming dogmatic about the fortification and imposition of a, a uh, of dominant structures as opposed to a, a kind of fluid acceptance of ongoing mystery that has no one point of certainty. Uh, so I, I recognise what you're saying, but I feel in both instances there is room for the assertion of dogma. Um, I wonder that from your um, understanding of uh, theoretical physics and quantum physics, what what ha do you understand from this mysterious subparticular world that evokes in you a sense of uh, a pure wonder and mystery that perhaps is comparable to the kind of beauty evoked in uh, artistic disciplines and in uh, the areas of uh, religion? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, before answering this last question, you're certainly right. I mean, in, science is far from being pure and, uh, uh, and, uh, and all good. Um, science is also the, the human activity that has, you know, has given us the atomic bomb and is, uh, has been male-dominated uh, like many other uh, human activities and even more so recently. And so on. I mean, there, and there is a lot of dogmatism in science, of course. Um, so... When I was talking about science, I was talking about the, uh, what I think is the best part of science and what, what attracts me in science, which is the, the other way around. This fact that we are taught to, to not trust our teachers, that's the core of science, that what you learn in books might be wrong and, 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 and go above it. Um, now you ask what's, what I find uh, uh, in science um, that leads us to the sense of mystery and, and uh, not understanding. And I think th there are many things. Um, science constantly challenges our common sense um, from the moment in which it told us that, you know, there is, the, the earth is round, the people living upside down, the other side of the earth. Um, but uh, recently even more, and uh, um, my, uh, my, my last two books, one is, um, uh, my last science books. One is on, on uh, Einstein, uh, basically evolution and what goes with it and uh, how space and time are completely different than the way we think about. Um, 
but I have uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just finished another book, which is not out in, in the UK, yes. Uh, the title is Helgoland, which is about quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is probably the greatest revolution in physics of the 20th century, more than Einstein revolution. And basically quantum, what quantum mechanics tell us um, is that our idea of reality being made by things, like this is a cap, a sort of set of atoms attached together and this is it, it's white, it's this shape, it's wrong. <laughs> um, it's completely wrong um, because uh, uh, what happens is that even at the most elementary sort of uh, material, so to say level, um, the reality is not made by matter, it's made by relations and the way things in interact with one another. Um, we already know that reality at many levels is made by relations, right? We humans are made by the interactions with the rest. Uh, a country is an interaction in, between people, relations between, uh, between people and, and, and place and, and, and so on. Reality we know is made by uh, interactions. Uh, we, we understand things uh, in terms of uh, the way they interact. The chemical element is only the way you interact with other chemical elements. But even at the most elementary level, the atoms of the particles of which the world uh, uh, physics tell us is made, uh, they only, we, today we understand it, that's quantum mechanics, only in the way um, they affect something else. So the idea that the world is made by objects, it's uh, wrong according to contemporary physics. The world is made by relations. The world is a network of, of relation. This I think is completely mind blowing. And uh, it's, it's, it tell us deeply that reality is far more complex uh, than, uh, than what we usually think. And that's the, and it, it's more than that. We're not really sure we understand this exactly. So there is a level of mystery and uh, uh, there's an ongoing discussion among physicists, theoretical physicists, among philosophers, of what exactly we've learned about the world with quantum mechanics, uh, um, which uh, to me, it speaks to the mystery of the world, to, to the magic of the world. Uh, um, and it tells us that uh, uh, we are in a, in a fantastic place we haven't understood yet. And that's the beauty of science for me. Even the isness, the isness, the beingness of the most fundamental components of our physical reality have no static objective state. They live and exist only in relationship with other entities. So there is almost no stable objective reality at the most fundamental level. Is, is that right? Precisely. I think, Russell, you, 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 you expressed in a, in a sentence what I believe is, uh, is, uh, is what uh, quantum mechanics is telling us uh, right now. If our, we have managed to create cultures, uh, systems, hierarchies without understanding this sort of, it seems somewhat ultimately unknowable uh, dimension or aspect of our reality, this almost this crucible of our reality, then what does it suggest about our systems of understanding and what shortcomings they may have if they do not incorporate this uh, sort of um, rather radical principle that you've just outlined? 
I think that we humans uh, make a mistake when we uh, try to, um, when we ask for certainty <laughs> and when we try to anchor what we do, what we believe, what we, um, what we expect from the world to some, uh, uh, to a request of certainty. Uh, we don't have certainties. Uh, we, we live in a world of constant uncertainty about our own knowledge. Our own knowledge is not certain, but that does not mean uh, that is empty or that is, uh, um, or that is not reliable. Things can be reliable even if they're not certain, right? If I have mm -hmm. to go downtown and I ask the way or look at map, I think that's the way and I go that way and almost always I, that's the right way. Um, so it's, it's reliable information what I get, you know, asking somebody in the street, but it's not certain, sometimes it goes wrong. So there's nothing wrong is in not knowing the foundations, not knowing the basis. I think that the, most of our knowledge is correct, is good. Most of the things we do work. Um, we construct our uh, life, our politics, our culture, our understanding, our art, our music, everything on, uh, without a solid basis, but good. I mean, who, can, who needs a solid basis? I, I mean, um, in, in my last book, which is just about physics, uh, there's a chapter about Nagarjuna and there's a chapter about Nagarjuna in this, uh, um, in this uh, uh, last book published, the, 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 the Kindness, There are places in the world um, where rules are less important than kindness. Uh, Nagarjuna is this um, um, old uh, Buddhist uh, thinker, uh, which has had a huge impression on me because um, um, the way I understand what I get out of it, um, I'm sure other people get different things out of him, but what I get out of him is just uh, a message like, uh, you know, you're thinking that there is an apparent reality with all this complexity and behind it, there is um, a fundamental reality. Good, we forget about the fundamental reality. That's not existing, perhaps. Things exist only in relation to one another, and that's all without the need of grounding it on something ultimate. Yes, I understand. We are in limitless space, but we are also in Bologna. And how do we incorporate it, limitless space into being in Bologna? We are in infinite, unknowable time, but we, it is also Wednesday. Exactly. Um, what about, see how... We were saying, you know, there was a time, of course, when we couldn't appreciate a spherical Earth, which had people upside down on the other side of it. We perhaps were living more primitive or even, you know, medieval uh, lives then. That uh, Do you feel like that the, the, the teleology of scientific, technological and medical progress is somehow detached from uh, more behavioral and humane progress what i mean is is that in a sense the two medieval people it was irrelevant and remains irrelevant that there were other people on the other side of the world upside down and to modern people this uh, as you said in that uh, buddhist philosophy whatever this fundamental reality may be it doesn't 
necessarily does it is it my question does it affect our morality and our day-to-day does it not imply that if there is no objective reality at the level of our essence that we are somehow believing our own reality into being through our relationship if we say the world is beautiful and full of love and that there is a god then all these things are becoming true almost as we walk this path we make it i.e. if in the world of physics there is this limitless potentiality why should we abide by any doctrine or dogma here on this more rudimentary level of reality um well uh i think we should be ready to question any doctrine or dogma um not take it as definitive uh, but nevertheless we we cannot live without beliefs and uh, structure. So we're always within a structure and, and, and a belief. And from that, um, from that we judge, from that we decide, from that we, uh, we think. Uh, we cannot just jump out of from the conversation and start from scratch. We're always what we are with our history. And, uh, and uh, I, I think that in the in the course of the of the centuries uh, we have changed, uh, and uh, from the current perspective, we certainly have uh, changed for better. Um, not just in knowledge; there's no doubt that we know more than uh, a certain number of centuries ago. Um, but also in terms of uh, uh, what you said, morality and, and 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 politics. I mean, there was a time in which. Uh, slavery was okay. There was a time in which uh, uh, burning young girls and young boys uh, to honor a god uh, was okay. Uh, there was a time uh, uh, in which uh, uh, women were considered uh, uh, inferior to men and still going on. We're still in that time, uh, unfortunately, but we're trying to move out of it um, and so on and so forth. Um, and in terms of our capacities, uh, uh, there was a time in which the lifespan of the of the, uh, the the life expectancy of humans was 30 years, not long ago. Now it's 70, so we have more than doubled the, the, our life. Now this doesn't mean that this is a progress that is always going for better. Uh, it can go bad any time. Nothing guarantees that we continue. Uh, but I think there is progress, and uh, this progress. Uh, at least there has been progress so far. I mean, it's up to us to just try to go in a direction we, 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 we like on the basis of values, which are our values. They don't come from outside. We, we are ourselves um, having values and uh, evolving and negotiating values among, among ourselves, I think. And that's our political life. Carlo, I have so many questions. I think I'm going to have to ask them all at once and you seem to be able to answer multiple questions simultaneously. The first one I would say is that in a way we do still sacrifice children to God, the children that are sort of mining for minerals in the Congo. Thank you so that we can have the technology that we're using now. And the fact that it is rationally underwritten doesn't make it 
any more appealing the sort of exemption of the the, the sort of i don't know uh, indigenous superstition doesn't make the sacrifice uh, for economic progress of certain elites or even certain populations any more appealing also i would argue that this uh, sort of apparent uh, progress with regard to say slavery is sort of more of a kind of a necessary political shift that nevertheless maintains the kind of hegemonies that would have benefited from slavery i.e okay you don't have to work for nothing in chains but you can work for next to nothing in urban poverty so this idea and may i even venture this myth of progress i sometimes feel is uh, superficial and is a uh, accompaniment to the uh, maintenance of certain power structures that were likely comparable to the power structures, whether it's uh, like a tribal societies in, you know, I don't know, in sort of the Aztecs, where it would be okay to fling a kid off a pyramid, or uh, later societies, you know, 20th, 19th century societies, where it'd be cool to have slaves. I still feel that I feel that the shifts are minimalist and not fundamental, not essential, and that what you know are oh, these people don't live in poverty, and even with the uh, the extension of life, I still feel that that is a difficult argument to make when we incorporate quality of life, sense of connection, reality. I'm not saying I would rather live in some terrifying barbaric society than, you know, I'm a privileged person anyway, so like I'm probably not a good case study. But I sometimes feel that there is a danger in this this um, self-congratulatory idea that we are progressing because we evidently are in terms of technology and science, no, no question, no question, that, that that somehow has a correlative when it comes to civil rights which i sometimes think are n- not significant enough and sometimes actually quite insidious masking the o- o- ongoing hierarchies that we, i think you understand my point yeah i agree i agree 100 percent. i agree that there is this danger and it's very strong uh and in fact it's not just a danger i think we're constantly falling into this uh, into this uh uh, into what you're saying, namely uh, congratulating ourselves because we don't have slaves anymore. We don't uh, throw kids out of the uh, of, of the mountains. We don't uh, um, um, we don't have death penalty in our world and so on and so forth. Uh, and we forget, uh, or, or we don't want it more than we forget. We don't want to lose, or we use that to hide uh, the amount of. Uh, uh, suffering and justice and inequality and horror that the world, our world, is uh, is is in. We're, we, I, I agree with you, Russell. We're not, uh, we're not in a, in a in a in in a paradise. We're not in a perfect world. We're not in a good world either. Uh, there is a, a, the level of inequalities both in our societies and and even more in in in, in the planet as large is immense and growing, and the amount of suffering around the planet is immense. Um, so I, I'm 100% with you. Um, I think still that uh, the very reason in which we, <clears throat> the very reason for which we, we would like to address that and we think that perhaps we can address that is the hope and the idea that there can be progress. Um, so you're right that there is a danger in, uh, 
in the idea of progress because we self-congratulate where we are. Even worse, we use that to defend our privileges. But there's also danger in saying that there's no progress because that's what justifies the idea that, well, that's the world what it is. Uh, the strong wins, the poor suffers, and, uh, and that's it. We don't want to do anything, which is an even larger danger, I would say. So our value system, which I believe to some to good extent we share, needs and wants the idea <clears throat> that a progress is possible and we can do something for addressing the things. Uh, this world is not the, on, the only possible world. Uh, I think there could be a better one. Yes, yes, particularly given what you were saying about the kind of most native templates for the way that reality is formulated. I wonder, Carlo, please, could you explain to me uh, anything that you may feel or think about the nature of uh, consciousness and the origins of consciousness given uh, the forma the formation of objects on a quantum level and if these theories are uh, interconnected in any way? Um, yes, I can tell you what I think. Um, first of all, <clears throat> um, consciousness or whatever we mean by con consciousness is a very vague word. It's very much used today. Uh, including in philosophy, uh, including by scientists. Uh, um, but it's used uh, sort of uh, in a vague sense to in, mean something that in the past was, uh, was called the soul or um, was a spirit or things like that. Um, I think that uh, we still don't know how we work. We, I mean, humans or animals or uh, things to which we attribute consciousness. Uh, um, there's a lot of we don't understand. I do not think that uh, whatever consciousness is, uh, is something fundamentally different <clears throat> from the rest of nature. <clears throat> I think that uh, uh, nature itself is more complicated, um, as I said, from just uh, pieces of matter bouncing around in space and attracting each other with forces. So, uh, nature is more complicated than that. Nature is about relations. And uh, um, I think that uh, uh, we, the reason we are confused um, about what, what we are, what our subjectivity is, uh, is because uh, we, first of all, we, we misunderstand matter. So we have difficulty of imagining um, how uh, matter can give rise to something like me, me feeling, me thinking, me knowing, me having emotions. But also, I think we misunderstand ourselves. We try to make, we think about ourselves, um, the me, the I, as an entity, as something that has consciousness, who has consciousness. Rather, uh, I, I think this is a mistake. Um, I mean, many people in philosophy, Eastern and Western philosophy, have observed that. Uh, this mythology of the self that has consciousness, uh, it's probably uh, largely an illusion. What we are, I mean, consciousness is real. It's me and, and my subjectivity. But what I am, it's an ensemble of happenings, of processes, uh, a, a complicated ensemble of processes and relations with, uh, with what is outside. Um, which we uh, have difficulty of understanding, but just because, you know, we're complicated. Eh? 
and uh, it doesn't i don't believe that it's a, a substantially different from other processes of nature so i think uh, nature is complicated there are many things we understand many things we don't understand but after all it's just the same thing um, going on and we are just one of the many things in the in the universe i don't believe that in this immense universe uh, um, uh, billions of billions of galaxies and uh, and star in each galaxies and planet and this, uh, here on the earth something very special has happened i think there are special things all over yes you so you think that consciousness is not say distinct from other phenomena that we perhaps better understand say uh, uh, like the laws of thermonuclear dynamics or gravity like that 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 consciousness is another thing occurring within within nature within these same laws i think namely um it's not that we know all the laws of physics i mean my my work is in quantum gravity which is exactly trying to understand some of the laws which we for sure we don't know uh which is when quantum and gravity comes together so i'm well aware that uh there are some physical laws that we don't know but i think with the laws that we do know uh gravity, uh, general relativity, quantum mechanics, electromagnetism, and so on, it's perfectly possible that those laws are sufficient to give rise to something like consciousness. Like, you know, they give rise to a, to a storm, a thunderstorm, which is another thing we haven't understood yet, by the way. We don't have a good physics of the thunderstorms yet. Uh, but we don't think that the th th thunderstorm is, uh, is some sort of magic outside the laws. We don't really think that there's Jupiter anger causing the thunderstorm right we don't need that we say well we'll figure out better you know there's some electric phenomena there is some uh, pressure phenomena there's water there's wind there is all sorts of things going on now we are much more complicated than the thunderstorm there's no doubt about that um we do a lot of things which we understand because uh, many of the things our brain does, uh, your computer do so you know if your computer does we know how a computer works we sort of do the something similar but we do many more things than the computer we're not computers we're far more complicated than computers we work differently than computers so we haven't understood how we work but nature is incredibly rich by bringing together a few things the complexity of what comes out is fantastic and i think we are part of this incredible complexity uh nature has an imagination that we don't have wow 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 um if uh, if the conditions to create consciousness or thunderstorms you know, somehow were present in the earlier forms of our physical and material world, is it possible that both that consciousness exists in other forms parallel to this one? Is our are we beginning to understand that space and time, and obviously I w w would love to you to teach me about this, that our understanding of space and time and consciousness are kind of, in a sense, limited and that there is so much that as yet to be understood that we can't even begin to speculate on how many forms consciousness might take and by consciousness i sort of just mean yeah awareness and subjectivity i don't mean a necessarily a traditional form uh, like an idea of spirit though i can see how that would be uh, appealing too um 
I think that um, consciousness is, a, is, is a natural phenomenon and, 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 and we're one of them. And uh, I don't see why there couldn't be other forms of consciousness. Um, we have a minimal, minimal example of that. And I talk about that in this book, um, which is a, a sort of small hint, which is octopus. Octopus is, a, is the animal, you know, the sea animal with, a, with, a, with the tentacles. Uh, they have an incredibly complex uh, uh, nervous neural system, but totally different from ours. Ours, I don't mean humans, I mean mammals in general. Uh, I mean animals in general. Octopus are not really animals in the um, biological sense. So um, uh, uh, evolution has developed uh, complex neural systems twice. Once is uh, us and cats and uh, uh, birds. Um, so we're all cousin and we sort of think similarly. Uh, cats and us think very similarly. I think I can I easily identify in a cat playing with and a kitten playing with another kitten. But octopus have, uh, have evolved differently and don't, they don't have really a brain. They have a neural system which is all over their body. And in a sense, each part of their body thinks independently in a coordinate way, but in a more independent way. If you catch one of the arms of an octopus, it keep being very intelligent and doing intelligent things. We, are, we just do everything with a single brain. So they should be conscious in some way, which is related to ours, because they do very similar things to us, uh, but very different also, because their structure of their brain is completely different. And they're still, you know, creatures on, on earth, they, we have common ancestors with octopus. So they're also cousins, more distant cousins. So elsewhere in the universe, the universe is immense and there are all sorts of conditions. I believe that there are all sorts of different forms of consciousness um, or, or whatever we mean by consciousness. What, what I don't think, um, I've, I've seen that one of your um, uh, uh, conversations was about panpsychism in the past. And I'm not very attracted by panpsychism. Panpsychism is the idea that everything is conscious, even a cap is conscious. I think this is a little bit of confusion because um, um, it comes from, it comes from, uh, panpsychism come from the, from the intuition that, well, I'm conscious, I'm made by atoms. So in some sense, atoms must be conscious already in order for me to be conscious. And I, I don't think this works because, um, um, you know, a bicycle is made by atoms, but it doesn't mean that atoms are cyclists, proto-cyclists. Uh, atoms are atoms and the bicycle comes from the way atoms are put together. So uh, whatever is my consciousness, it comes, it, it need, the, what I call consciousness of myself, it requires my eyes, my skin, my brain, my neurons, all that sort. So my, my own version of consciousness or your own version of consciousness requires all that. If you take away your, your body, uh, your consciousness disappears. I don't, I don't think there is anything, there's not soul separated from, from your body. We are, we, our soul, whatever it is, is our body, it's the same thing. So, um, I think that to create something as complex as a subjectivity, uh, you need some complex stuff. Um, elementary things are not conscious in that sense, even if something is in common, which is uh, the fact that um, whatever exists, exists in relation with something else. 
So you can always talk about the world uh, with respect to an object, which is the way the world affect this object. But this doesn't mean that the object is conscious about the world. It only means that the object is affected by the world, it's, uh, that there's a world related, refer to it. Um, so the answer to, to your question is yes, I think there should be all sorts of different ways of being subjected, which have, we have no idea uh, about, uh, but they should all require some sort of complexity and should, consciousness should not go down to elementary things, I believe. I ah. think we don't really know all that. Yeah, you think it comes from complexity, not from essence. The uh, same as, uh, yes, you think that material precedes spirit, not spirit precedes material. Do you think um, that, that, so I, I guess then, that you don't feel that there is a possibility for non-local consciousness, for even in terms of... <laughs> Gaia, even in even in terms of relational intelligence, even in terms of ecology, the relationship between species or sets of uh, different biological entities in a kind of symbiosis. Would you say that that is more intelligence than consciousness? That, you know, for example, you know, in uh, James Lovelock's famous example, a certain algae it proliferates, this keeps heat in the water. If that algae goes, we lose the heat. I'm talking about sort of, I don't know, sort of ecological principles that seem to somehow mimic intelligence in terms of the requirement for the these numerous components to behave almost like one anatomy in the same way you describe that octopus doing that, you know, that if one element is severed, there is still an ongoing awareness or at least a biosphere, but... It is somehow altered. Yeah, I think that this uh, this connection exists. Namely, um, there's a huge similarity between the way um, the the Earth as a whole works together, and 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 the way my brain as a whole works together. But it doesn't go in the direction that uh, um, there is an entity which is my soul, and there's an entity which is uh, uh, Gaia or the earth as, as, as a single spiritual, it goes in the other direction. I mean, we understand ourselves um, in thinking about, I understand myself thinking about Carlo uh, as, as a unit, uh, which is a very useful way of thinking about myself, uh, um, but I understand myself better as a complex relational phenomena um, each one of them individually uh, is incomprehensible unless I see it how it's related in its uh, in a network, and so we understand the Earth better as a network of phenomena, and if we keep looking at one, each one separately, we just don't understand them. Uh, it's only in their relations we understand them. This is even in a, in a simpler sense. I mean, why? Uh, why a deer is like that and run fast because there are predators that uh, that uh, run after it and uh, why the predators have teeth because they're deers um so just things make sense when you you see them together not when you see them separate um which by the way is a political statement also <laughs> because we um we work together in 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 collaborations not not against one another um, so Gaia, the, the idea that we understand the earth as a single unity is correct uh, because it's, it's profoundly correct, I think. It tells us, look, 
think larger because in, it's in the relation that you understand things. Um, to some extent, this means that reality is made by, by larger thing. Uh, but this doesn't mean that uh, there is a soul of the earth that comes before the set of relations that establish themselves. It's a relation themselves that creates this unit, I think. Like is a relation between my neuron themselves that create this uh, thing that I want to call myself. Yes. I mean, we're in a way talking about the chronology, but I wonder if we are also discussing the uh, deep possible discreteness because what I return to continually Carlo and I'll be glad to present it before a, a, a mind as uh, powerful and as well attuned as yours is that surely all diagnosis we make are offered within the limitations of our sensory experience and the limitations of our own neural network. Recently I heard, why would we expect a universal mystery to be understood by a primate neural network? How could it be? How could it be? In the same way that there are limitations to the sensory information that we can read just on the electromagnetic spectrum, surely there will be correlatives to that in all forms of frequency, all forms of information, that what we are regarding as an objective model of reality is simply a temporary understanding of reality as curated by the limitations of our, of our mind. So this, for me, means that the mystery is ongoing. And in a sense, that because you say that at the... And, you know, have proven theoretically and scientifically that that, that at the most fundamental level uh, uh, reality is relational. I sense that a useful vehicle for creating new systems, and you have alluded to the political correlative to uh, uh, symbiosis and the necessity for us to regard uh, the the planet and our population as inter interrelated. That that this idea of unity, a unity sort of based on faith, a faith being the acceptance of our inability to truly understand, could be, ought be, a positive thing, not a retrospective return to sort of simplistic dogmas and patriarchal pyramids of power. So I suppose what I'm asking is, is it not possible that there are such things as non I don't want to get into pure you know Bigfoot and UFO territory but is it not possible that uh, that there hmm, I mean you are deliberately saying there is nothing uniquely mysterious about consciousness even compared to something like a, a thunderstorm or photosynthesis or or whatever but for me I feel I feel, and my feel, there's more to science than my feelings, I, I will acknowledge, that the, at the, at the, when we are uh, observing quantum physics, it appears we are observing if <laughs> a kind of intelligence, even in that we are observing relationships, even that we are observing function. Is that not something that... Uh, inspires you or appears to have any, um, I don't know, substance to you? Uh, your question is vague. <laughs> it's not precise. Mm. So I, 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 I think I sort of see what you're saying. Um, I, 
uh, let me try to address it from a different perspective. I think that um, mm, we have been, um, we come from a tradition of uh, uh, understanding the world in terms, in, in terms of spirits. And uh, in, in philosophy, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in Italy, which is in the same uh, um, philosophical tradition as Germany, uh, in an idealistic tradition. And of course, we're also uh, being influenced by some part of Eastern um, thinking. And these are all perspective in which uh, um, I would say the world exists in our mind before rather than our mind existing in the world. And uh, they're both true, of course. I mean, it's true that uh, everything I know about the world is in my mind. Uh, what else I know about the world? Uh, but it's also true that my mind is just part of the world. So uh, the question is which one of the two perspectives uh, help us better um, understanding more and, and, and working more about the world. And I think uh, for me, a sort of naturalistic perspective in which I, uh, I distinguish the problem of how I think about the world from the problem of how I know about the world. Because of course I know about the world only about my eyes and, 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 and my thoughts. So, but that's not very interesting in a sense. It's more interesting to understand myself as part of the world. And I don't think the world is um, better understood uh, in, uh, in, uh, in in spiritual terms, in the sense, in, in things more similar um, to our direct experience of consciousness. Um, I think that's a mistake of putting us too much at the center and thinking that everything is like us. Um, we are, we always, uh, I mean, I was an only child. And as an only child, I thought that, um, I am the center of the universe. And then growing up, I realized that I'm just one of like the other, like many others. And I think you, humankind has gone through the same process. I mean, there was a moment in which we thought that the entire universe was built for us, uh, like us. Uh, God is just like a man, uh, bigger and stronger and more spiritual, or maybe less, uh, I mean, some, but just like man. And uh, we try to keep projecting ourselves onto the rest and reading the rest in terms of ourselves. Uh, um, it might work to some extent, but I think we learn better by saying, wait a minute, let's separate our projection on the world from uh, um, our, our better understanding of the world. And there's a moment in which I understand that the others are like me, but they're also different. And then a cat is like me, but is also different. And then a stone is like me, but is also different. And uh, it, this difference is more interesting in, in, in a sense. So I, to the extent in which I understand what you're suggesting, I, I, I think I do, but I'm not sure. Um, I would a little bit, I, I'm not close to this way of thinking, but I would say careful of not trying to uh, 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 try to understand the world by, you see, let me put it in another way. We, our brain, at some point in our evolution, um, sort of million years ago, something like that, 
or a bit uh, we we grow this incredible brain uh, with respect to the other species uh, next to us uh, we have a much huge brain than the chimpanzee or a gorilla and uh, uh, and we learn to do all this stuff incredible that humankind does including culture and language and and and, uh, and and this complicated music that we do and 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 art and history and all these books that we have there that you know chimpanzee don't have and and conversations like ours uh, now, what was the first thing from which this came out? Uh, there are some anthropologists that say, and I find it convincing, that uh, mostly it was talking to one another and the complexity of our relation within groups, which means that mostly what we do is to think about, I, I'm trying to guess what is your mind, what you're telling me when you think, and reading each other's mind. So we, our brain grew up thinking about the other members of the group, and then we use that to think about nature. So immediately when we see a tree, I see a tree, I try to relate to a tree and, and it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. As if it was a brother of me, I talk to the tree. I do talk to the tree. I feel the tree communicating to me. This is wonderful. So the way our brain works. But what I'm doing is I'm moving away of um, uh, getting a relation with you which works well with you, I'm moving it to the tree, which is good. And I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with that, uh, but it doesn't help me to understand the tree if I really want to understand it. I want to get rid of this to some extent. Except, of course, you do have a relationship with the tree in terms of photo. I mean, even in a biochemical sense, in terms of the. So, in a way, what I concerns me, I suppose, and what I was trying to somehow. Um, uh, concretize into my earlier question is that when we foreclose on the possibility of different types of beingness and the potential power of that influence we replicate the template of uh, patriarchal monotheism from a materialistic perspective i.e. reality is what we can measure that is reality we recognize that there are things we haven't yet measured but we will measure them and until we do this is what is known now i think that all, we will include in that ongoing experiment the results of this uh, dominant ideology because i would argue that whilst of course uh, the the origins of our thought or the precedents of modern scientific thought are present in the way we organize politically and internationally and economically that the dominant ideas are empiricism rather than, uh, you know, Christianity, even though that you can see the origins of a kind of by making man God, you make the world man's God, God's domain, you make uh, the world God, man's domain, you make us discreet and separate from nature. And I recognize our absolute integrity. And I agree that the, you know, the emergence of language is likely the point where we establish um, simplified relationships and all language requires a kind of, uh, yeah, sort of a, a simplification in order to you know, express difference and, but what I suppose the thing that I, what is the thing that I'm going at? I believe in God. That's the thing that, 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 I, that, that sort of drives me. And um, my belief in God is a kind of, what I sense is that this awareness that I have is God, that there is a unity in all, in all things, that not that my awareness and your awareness and the cat's awareness are the, are the same, but that the differences we exhibit have come from this unity. And I suppose 
I can't. I, I feel that we already know that humanitarianism, as derived from Christianity, secular humanitarianism, is not going to be a sufficient tool to reorganize the way we create cultures, the way that we save this planet, the way that we create a fairer a more beautiful society. I feel there is something vital in this mystery and I really want to understand to communicate it better so that you don't think it's vague. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm an only child also, by the way, but I'm still waiting for that moment where I don't think I'm the centre of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Look, um, things are not white or black, right? I mean, and it's not... Uh, it's not um... Not one is culpable and one is innocent. It's, uh, things are complicated. And I think the, the, also the historical um, intersection and influences of the different way of thinking is, is, uh, is strong. I don't think there is on one hand, uh, uh, what, what I'm, I guess what I was trying to argue is that I don't think there is on one hand uh, a sort of um, materialistic, scientific, uh, everything you see is measured way of the world. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, there is a spiritualistic uh, um, uh, value-centered, uh, uh, God-based uh, view of the world. I think that the, the reality of both is, is more complicated. And, um, and, uh, and uh, I, I think what we need is it's, uh, it's to, uh, uh, to articulate both what help us understanding better and what help us doing better. So it's a, it's a knowledge problem, but it's also a political problem in, 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 in a large sense. Um, there's no doubt that a, a brutal uh, uh, material-based uh, reading of the universe, it's, uh, it, 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 it might lead to disaster. And there's no doubt also that a strongly... Uh, I know there is God, uh, and the true God is my God. A few of the universe also believe in disaster. I wish we could uh, find a perspective that helps us to um, um, understand that the other, the truth of the other, is it's interesting and it's valuable, and accept uh, uh, this. Uh, intersection and debate, which is culture, as a way of uh, organizing our thinking and uh, and uh, finding the common values uh, that we share, and on this, try to build for uh, for a better world. Oh, thank you, Carlo. May I just quickly ask you a bit about what that thing was that you how you used Dante to uh, uh, explain physics. Uh, Oh, it's a fantastic story. It's, uh, uh, I haven't discovered it. It was a mathematician of the 70s that realized that. But once he realized that, it's completely obvious to anybody who knows Dante. Dante is, a, is the greatest Italian poet. We are in the, in the sort of 14th century. Uh, so the, the Middle Ages, the, 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 the last part of the Middle Ages. And it's, it's an immense poet, Dante. And uh, um, he was also extremely learned uh, person. Uh, he um, very extremely cultured. And in his uh, poem, there is something absolutely uh, mind bending and astonishing, um, which is that in his 
poems, he describes the shape of the universe. The poem is a divine comedy. It's a story of uh, himself that uh, goes into hell and then uh, purgatory and then paradise and describes the shape of the universe. And the shape of the universe that he describes, it's a remarkable shape. It's very strange in the poem. Uh, if you don't know modern physics, you say, what the hell is he talking about? But if you know modern physics, you see that he has a clear intuition about the geometrical thing, which is called the three sphere, which is exactly what Einstein in 1917 suggested as the possible shape of the world, which is a three sphere. So the idea that Einstein uh, developed uh, in, in 1917 um, about the possible shape of the universe uh, is found exactly the same in a late, late middle age poem by Dante. And the, the idea is that the, the world, the, the cosmos um, is finite. So it's not infinite. It's just finite, a certain number of kilometers cube, finite, but it doesn't have a boundary. So if you, if you start from the center and you go out here, you sort of come out the other side. And uh, if you keep going, walking, traveling one direction, you come back the other direction after a finite. Uh, uh, path. So the, the entire universe is, and this is possible. It's uh, modern mathematicians call this a three sphere. You can imagine two balls which are attached. If you come out from here, you come inside here. So you start from the center, you go out here, you go here, and, and you come out from, from the other side. And uh, this is three sphere. It's, it's an object that, uh, you know, if you study mathematics and you're a student, you just learn it and it's well defined. And and it's hard to have an intuition. And Einstein proposed that this could be the shape of the universe. So the universe is finite, but has no boundary. And Dante, in, at the end of the Middle Ages, got exactly the same idea. It's fantastic. How, how, what do you think is meant by intuition in this kind of uh, seemingly uh, divine um, understanding of something so complex? What do you think that is, and are you going to permit me to use that as an example of a kind of non-local consciousness transmitting information, not through material or rational means, but directly through that number one radio station, <laughs> Genius FM? Uh, well, what do we mean by intuition is a great question. What is intuition is a great question. Um, we, I think we, we, we have a conceptual structure Right? We, we, don't, we understand the world uh, on the basis of a number of concepts that we have, notions that we have, and we use them to, to, to describe things. And to, when, when we see something around us, we recognize these things in terms of these concept, uh, concepts, and we recognize the relation of these things in terms of concepts. Some are very simple. Uh, stone is, is a stone, and some are complicated. A nation is a complicated concept, or... or uh, theoretical physics is a very complicated, uh, uh, God is a very complicated concept, a very rich concept and so on and so forth. But this concept change, that's the point. I and mean, we don't think the way, the same way, we don't think about the universe in exactly the same way in which uh, uh, 3000 years ago, people thought about the universe. So we keep changing, we keep evolving. And, and our brain does, uh, this incredible thing that it uses its own conceptual structure to understand the world, but it also modifies its own conceptual structure. I think that's what we learn in this millions years of evolution of our speeches. We, we learn to, 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 to adapt our way of thinking. And so we have these jumps in, uh, in uh, 
we make connections within uh, between different things. We realize that things we were separate are one, and we create new concepts to to, to measure things. And the way this is done by the you know in our brain we have uh, something like a hundred billion neurons. It's a believable number, and they are all connected to one another, and so they can be an incredible number of. Uh, combinations. So there's this space of possibilities in our brain, which is meant. And uh, somehow nature found a way to make all this work. And uh, we don't understand how we understand things. In fact, that's a fascinating problem. That's in a sense, the true problem of consciousness. So, but this jumps in our brain to create new concepts and new connections. Uh, um, it's what intuitions are. Uh, we are amazed by the world. We're amazed by what we discover. We're even more amazed by what we ourselves do. Oh, this is very beautiful. And uh, finally, one question. Um, who is that monk, Bruno something or another, who was killed for apostasy or heresy before postulating that the earth was not the center of the universe? I believe he was an Italian, maybe Dominican monk, maybe in uh, around the same time as Dante. Yes, was... Uh, um... Just before uh, Galileo, his name was Giordano Bruno. Uh, he was a monk and uh, he had uh, uh, a lot of, um, he was not really a scientist, but has, uh, had a, a, a lot of uh, intuitions about uh, the universe and he was a believer in the infinite universe. He was believed in the fact that uh, the earth is not the center of the world, uh, um, but there may be many other solar systems and planets and earth. Uh, and uh, he was sort of pre-science um, preacher, so to say, and uh, was very passionate about that. And the church didn't like it, and so asked him to to um, to renounce his idea. He did not, and he ended up being burned in in, in Rome uh, alive um, because uh, because the church, the Catholic Church, uh, didn't like uh, his ideas. And this is uh, one of the reasons uh, uh, Galileo, who is probably one of the fathers of science, one of the inventor of the scientific method, there are many fathers of science. Uh, science has grown different steps. Uh, but uh, Galileo finds himself in a similar situation a generation later, a few decades later, not long after Giordano Bruno. And he also was called by the, uh, the church and asked to renounce his ideas. And uh, Galileo more wisely said, okay, okay, I renounce my idea. And so he was left alone. <laughs> he found a brilliant loophole. Yeah, no, you're right, actually. You're probably right. The earth is the set. I realized that there was something on the lens. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He said, oh, you know, the lens was, uh, was dirty. Maybe that was the <laughs> in a sense, he's very modern. I mean, in a, in a sense, he won this way. He he ended up turning turning to be right. And you know, um, the Catholic Church has uh, taken away Galileo's book from the list of forbidden um, books. Uh, in 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 uh, uh, only um, in the in the twentieth century. Better late than never. Better late than that. <laughs> um, may I say, see, your, what is your um, loop quantum gravity theory? Is it something that you can, I mean, isn't part of your uh, genius that you can put these rather complex ideas into uh, terms that we can understand? I can try to summarize in a, in, in a few sentences. It's a, it, it, 
the, 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 great, the great open problem in, in, in um, elementary physics and fundamental physics today is that Einstein uh, uh, and this, what Einstein understood about space and time uh, and what we understood with quantum mechanics, we talked about quantum mechanics before, uh, the two things don't go together well. So um, we, we have to understand what are the quantum properties of space time. And so loop quantum gravity is a theory on which I've worked uh, all my life. Um, it's an attempt to do that, to do uh, a quantum theory of gravity, which is a quantum theory of, 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 uh, of space and time. And, you know, there's a set of equations, there's a set of concepts to think about that. And the main, uh, the main uh, outcome, um, the main physical discovery, so to say, which we're not sure is true yet, but I hope it will be confirmed, is that space, we're immersed in space, um, is not continuous, uh, but it has a sort of short-scale granular structure. So there is a minimal size of space. You cannot divide space more than that. It's very, very small. It's called Planck scale. Um, but, uh, but that's it. I mean, the space is just a, a bunch of grains, uh, quanta of space, uh, uh, particles of space, if you want, which are not themselves living into a space. They, they themselves form the space in which we are. And that's the core of uh, loop quantum gravity. Oh, wow. Well, Carlo, thank you very much for uh, generously giving us your time for uh, so explaining in such a good humored and beautiful way these very, very complicated ideas. And thank you for the, the books that you've already written that I've enjoyed and found informative and uh, so instructive. I, I thank you for your work. Thank you, Russell. That was a great uh, conversation and you were provocative and stimulating. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm going to work on that vagueness. (laughs) 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 Thank you, sir. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Be sure to sign up to the mailing list. Get in touch on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. Remember to do that. Ask me anything. If you ain't got your tickets, come and see me live next month in November. Do that too. Jenny, my hermit crab chum, how are you feeling? I'm okay. Well done, you're brightening up. It's no. because of that. It's because I've sent you no. chakra boosts. Good old. That's when the sweat happened. Well, that's purging, purging and cleansing, you see. Okay, uh, thanks for joining me on Under the Skin from Luminary. Who's next week? Um, um, Ed. Come on, Jen. Ed. Yeah. Ed oh, Stafford. Ed, Ed Stafford. He's going to help us out. To, he's going to help us out to survive. I know that's not English. I know it's not. But if Ask Me Anything can be a phrase... So can that. Under the skin from Luminary. Thank you. Oh, I just let me thank everyone that's worked on this podcast. Charlie, thank you for your work. Demaya, thank you for your work. That concludes the list. <laughs> it's okay, you come across worse. <laughs> if people don't recognise this as bullying in the workplace, <laughs> if people don't recognise this as good-natured banter, then the people of Earth need to re-engage their humour. Starting with you, Jen. What? And ending t- with all your her- hermit crab cronies. Oh. And we can switch shells. We do it at the same time. Oof. Unhygienic. Apparently. In the pandemic. A, little shell switches. Toucans are worse. Luminary. <laughs> Toucan rule. <laughs> Toucan play that game. <laughs>